0: So today we're going to speak about uh, Buddha, one of the great figures in history, I think. Certainly started a big religion. At the present time, there are about 700 million Buddhists in the world. So... Uh, you must have read... Uh, his name comes from the Sanskrit root Buddha, which means to awaken or to to awaken someone else, or to awaken oneself. So Buddha, oops, uh, then becomes the Awakened One. It's sort of a title as opposed to a personal name. I'm sure you read that. So um, I want to talk about Buddha's life, his biography, and his social impact, and his social philosophy, because he had a very important social agenda. In a sense, he's described by historians as a reformer. And of course, he had a philosophy. He had ethical concerns and whether or not what he was teaching is religion or not. We won't bother with that. Just you know, the rose is a rose. So he was teaching what he was teaching. So hey, maybe. So we'll talk about his philosophy, what he taught, what his social views and impact were, and about his life. So to begin this, I want to uh, address historiographical issues. Grafe in Greek just means I don't graphe in Greek just means to write. So historiography is just writing history. Not the history itself, but the writing of history. So Buddha, the Buddha appeared about approximately 2,500 years ago. There are still scholarly debates, give or take several decades, whatever, but about 2,500 years ago. And um, the earliest biography was written about 500 years later. So there were teachings, now the case To give an analogy uh, from Christian history, for the last 200 years, among Christian scholars, who at the beginning were, were actually devout Christians, not people who were out to get Christianity, but Christian scholars, scholars who were Christian. For The last few hundred years, there's been a search for what they call the historical Jesus. In other words, we have reliable evidence there was a person named Jesus, and uh, and then we have this information about him coming somewhat later from people who had certain views and certain purposes. And to what extent are we getting a transparent picture of Jesus? To what extent are we getting a picture which is filtered through the accounts? Can we really reliably get back to the actual Jesus so we can see for ourselves exactly what he did and said? Anyway, I'm certainly not going to uh, attempt to give the answer to that, but that has been a very significant issue in Christian studies among faithful scholars and non-faithful scholars for for the last few hundred years. So in the same way, uh, what about the historical Buddha? To what extent are we really getting an accurate, quote-unquote, scientific picture? I mean, even most people in America don't believe everything they read in the media. There's a whole issue today about people reporting to us things that happened today. And a lot of people are skeptical about reports they get, even from journalists who think that they're being professional and just telling you what happened. And you know the whole telephone game where you tell someone something and it goes around by the time it gets around again. It's a very different story. So to what extent can we really get back to the historical Buddha? So that, that's the first thing I want to raise. I'm, I'm going to read some quotes from different sources uh, that address this issue. And then we'll talk, of course, about the life of Buddha, which you've all, I'm sure, read about. Uh, so, of course, there's the Tripitaka. The information comes, uh, pitaka means basket, in Sanskrit, three baskets. are sure The sutras, the sutras are basically uh, just what Buddha said, his teachings, or, or what People say he said in the most sort of simple, direct way. Then there's the Vinaya. Vinaya. In Sanskrit, the word Vinaya means something like discipline. It can also mean humility. These are the rules of the monastic orders, because Buddha himself, of course, was a renounced person. He was in the Shramana tradition, or he came out of the Shramana tradition. And apparently, he was actually quite a good organizer. Uh, he came from a, a ruling family. There's a whole debate on whether the town he came from, was it really a kingdom, as later sources say? Was it simply a republic? Was his father simply a member of the city council, basically, or or a real king? But in any case, it seems clear that he came from an upper-class family, a family that was used to governing. And he certainly had skill, he certainly had ability in organizing his community, so that by the time he left this world at the age of 80, there was an organized thing going on, an organized monastic tradition. In fact, he's one of the great pioneers of monasticism in that particular form in India. There were renounced people before him, and there were ashrams and communities of sages, but in terms of having sort of a corporate thing going on, a very structured thing with rules, and, you know, this is what you have to do. These are the admission requirements, and once you come in, this is what you have to do. You get up at this time, and a very regulated, organized thing. So... Anyway, so so the, the, the Vinaya, that's the Vinaya, the early monastic rules of the tradition. And the Abhidharma, which I was just discussing actually a few minutes ago with our local specialist Jason Nealis. the Abhidharma was uh, it talks about these things. It talks about Buddha, it talks about the monastic rules, and often Buddha is quoted, often it's attributed, like this is what Buddha taught, but even within the ancient Buddhist tradition, people tended to see the avidharma as not exactly historical in the same way the sutras were. It's on a somewhat different level. And so it's almost like the Talmud. It's like talking about all these things. And you get into issues like esoteric knowledge, and Buddha said this, but this is what he really meant, and so on and so forth. You start to get these esoteric layers, which of course can become a really green light to anyone who thinks they have a good idea this is what Buddha really meant. And that hap- that's going to happen uh, Friday. The world still exists when we have our class. Uh, we're going to talk about that. There's sort of like this explosion of creative Buddhism and all these new ideas which which all claim to be teaching what Buddha really meant. Like, n- whatever he said, this is what he really meant. So, this is what... Uh, the Macmillan Encyclopedia of Buddhism says about the sources, say like the sutras, according to tradition, according to tradition, the Buddha's discourses, his preaching, they were already collected by the time of the first council. When Buddha passed away, they immediately, everyone got together, like we better meet and figure out how to keep this thing going. So that was the first council, then a hundred years later, another council, and then by the fourth council, the whole Buddhist world just divided up into what became the Theravada Mahayana, but this is the First Council. Buddha just passed away, so come on everybody, let's gather, we need to talk to each other, we need to all agree on what our master taught, and how is this thing going to go on now? So that's the First Council. According to tradition, the Buddha's discourses were already collected by the time of the First Council, held shortly after the Buddha's death. Scholars, however, see the texts, as continually growing in number and size from an unknown nucleus. There's the key term, the unknown nucleus. Thereby undergoing various changes in language and content. So in other words, from the, from the point of view of the scholarly method, not inside the tradition where you have faith in certain things, which may be true. I can't say they're not true, but as far as scholarship can get at this, there's an unknown nucleus. In other words, you see it growing, it gets bigger and bigger, and you see new ideas coming in, but when you try to sort of like unpeel the onion all the way, if you know that, uh, who's it, that uh, Norwegian writer? My God, I can't. You know, the the famous Norwegian writer that everybody's forgotten. Anyway, so, he wrote The Doll's House for 20 points. (laughs) No? Ibsen. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, Ibsen. Thank you. So, 20 points we'll talk about later, what, kind of points, what that means. Anyway, so it's like, it's like you unpeel all these layers, and at the end, you're n- there's no center. I mean, obviously, there was an original idea, but we can't find out what it was. It's like with the Mahabharata. There's so, there, there, it was an oral tradition. There's so many different manuscripts. And when they tried to peel all the way back, it just like they threw their hands up in the air, all the scholars in the world saying, you can't figure out where this all originally came from. So the same with Buddhism. It, it's an unknown nucleus that just keeps growing and growing and growing and changing. So that's the first point. Here's something else from our book, uh, Indian philo- uh, very short introduction to Indian philosophy, very cheap introduction. Notwithstanding the free circulation of many popular stories based on the Buddhist tradition's didactic teaching and hagiographic narrative literature, you all know hagiography, writing about saints. Stories tend to be sort of mytho-historical writings about saints. So despite the free circulation of many popular stories, you have the Jataka stories, the birth stories that, that before Siddhartha became the Buddha, he had many, many glorious past lives, hundreds of lives. There's like hundreds and hundreds of stories about his past lives. So there were all these stories going around, but despite all these didactic and hagiographic literatures, we have no certain facts, no certain facts regarding the Buddha's early life, except that he was born, obviously, into a family who lived in the town of Kapilavattu, Sanskrit Kapilavastu, which is just over the border of Nepal now. It's in what's called the Terai, uh, Nepal. You know, it's famous for the mountains. People go there to the mountains. And so you come down from the big mountains into the foothills, and then just below the foothills there's this jungle called the Terai. So just in that area around the jungle and the foothills, that's where this place is. Um, And it seems likely that his family was well-to-do with high connections. And then from our book, Very Short Introduction to Buddhism, References to the royal status of the Buddha's father, Suddhodana, are most likely an exaggeration. In the same book, the most famous and elegant account of the Buddha's Buddhist life is an epic poem, Buddha Charita, composed in the first century AD. We're five or six hundred years down the road. And people have been glorifying the Buddha more and more and more. Again, we, that doesn't mean this book is wrong. Buddha may be everything that the book says. However, uh, it was written about five or six hundred years later. And that's the prominent biography by Ashwa Ghosh. Now, a certain amount of information is preserved in the Pali Canon about the Buddha's life, but no attempt was made to piece the details together to a continuous narrative until about 500 years after his death. I want to say a few words about the Pali Canon, because that's going to be a big issue. In terms of these literatures, these pitikas, uh there were many, many different versions of them. Pali canon survived. survive. Pali was the language the Buddha probably spoke in. Pali language is sort of the dialect of Sanskrit. It's sort of, you know, Sanskrit kind of sounds like Sanskrit with a Brooklyn accent. In the sense of like, instead of saying dharma, they say Dhamma, like what's your so, anyway, if you know Sanskrit, it kind of it, it, it's just a regional accent, like an eastern, northeastern regional accent. So anyway, the Pali canon is one of the earliest. It, it, it survived, and uh, in the Buddhist world, was sort of divided about approximately 2,000 years ago. Uh, one side was the Pali side, in the sense they're more conservative. They wanted to have pure Buddhism. It's almost like The Buddhist world was Protestant and had a Catholic Reformation. In the sense that you had this Pali side that was very strict, let's just teach what Buddha taught, but then you have this Mahayana, this explosion, which now is over 85% of the Buddhist world, by the way. China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and uh, Taiwan. It's most of the Buddhist world. And they began to look back on these early stories of Buddha. well, I don't want to get too much of this now, but I want to give you some idea of where we are. They developed this term called, um, oh my God, Kosheli. Upaya. We're going to talk more about this next week. Upaya means the means, like the way you do something, the means for achieving an end. And Koscieli means skill, so skill and means. The idea that what Buddha taught at this early stage was just very skillfully finding a way to help people, at the time, were kind of clueless. They were kind of they were called childish. And in fact, some of the ways the Mahayana will talk about these early followers of the Buddha are, are kind of denigrating. You kind of see them, you know, they, they didn't know very much, and so Buddha just taught them certain things, because that's what they could understand. And they they give the example that, you know, your children are trapped in a house, a house on fire. You can't explain to your children to come out. So you tell them, hey, there's some candy outside, so they run out. So all this early trying to get back to the early, early Buddha. Mahayana Buddhism, which now is 85% of the Buddhas in the world, they themselves will say this was just sort of a trick, a, a means that Buddha had to draw people in. But the real teachings, what he really meant to say is something else. We'll talk about that next week. But in any case, the Pali Canon, which is now, was preserved in Sri Lanka, just south of India, they have what they claim is the old stuff, this is the real Buddha, not all this stuff that you guys added on, not all these new interpretations and esoteric stuff. that's the Pali Canon. And so, some people think that if something's in the Pali Canon, the kind of Pali Canon-centric, that if something's in the Pali Canon, that's the real historical Buddha. There's a problem with that view also, with taking, even if you take... The Pali Canon, even if it is, was just a means that Buddha had to draw people in back then, But that's the real history, there's a problem with that view also. Uh, here's a quote from a British scholar named Skilton, who teaches Buddhism in England, regarding this Sutra Pitaka, which is what Buddha really said. In other words, this is the monastic, the monastic rules. These are the um, sort of interpretations of all this stuff. But this is what they claim Buddha actually said. These are, you know, the sermons. This is what he really taught. So, regarding the Sutra Pitika, there were versions of this. There were versions of this. In Sanskrit, Prakrit, Gandhari, and other vernacular languages, belonging to various other early schools. In other words, the Pali canon, which survived in Sri Lanka, written in the Pali language, that's just one of many versions of this. Going back to those times, Large portions of these other Sutra have survived in Chinese. Because when the Chinese took up Buddhism uh, probably 1900 years ago or 1800 years ago, we'll talk about that, they, um, they wanted to translate all this stuff. They wanted to get the scriptures. So some things have survived in Chinese, though only a small proportion of these have yet been translated into any European language. I remember I had a friend, Charles Hallacy, when I was at Harvard. And uh, he taught Buddhism there, and he, once we were just walking and talking, he said, yeah, the dirty little secret in Buddhist, Buddhist studies. He's got all these old texts, and, and they haven't been translated. And uh, most Buddhist scholars don't know Chinese, and they haven't been compared. There's no critical edition of it. So, this is what Skilton says. Only a small proportion of these have yet been translated into any European language, and a full comparison, trying to figure out like what's older, what's newer, what's authentic, what is apocryphal, all that. No, one did, no one's done that. No one's done the text-critical work to try to figure out what's the oldest source, and it's just not, not been done. The reason he gave is because everyone's trying to get tenure, and that's, people don't see that as like a real sexy academic thing to do. So you won't get tenure if you just like look at all these old books. So much was gone, <laughs> So not only that, but much was thought to have been lost after only the first thousand years. So not only has most of the stuff not been translated to any European language, not only has it not been critically compared, people believe much of it was lost. Supposedly, recited by Ananda, Ananda was like the personal attendant of the Buddha and, and an intimate acquaintance. And so in, in the sutras, the typical formula is that Ananda says that, um, thus I have heard, at one time, and then this or that Buddha said. So, Ananda is the companion who relates all these things, supposedly recited by Ananda at the first council. Again, the Buddhas just passed away, they have this first council, and Ananda, who was the personal attendant, the intimate traveling companion, associate of Buddha, he's still there, and so he's confirming or reciting this is what Buddha said. And so, all these sutras are given that authority. Yeah, Ananda told us this, so, I mean, he must know what Buddha said. But there's a problem with that. And that is, however, many of the sutras in the Pitaka, in this particular basket, post-date this time. In other words, by linguistic analysis and by other means, you study them, you see that, well, these things were actually written later. This is not the language that Ananda would have been speaking in. Some can be seen to be composite in character. In other words, someone added some things in, stuck some other stuff stu- in interpolation. And some can be with an early core surrounded by additions. In the Pali recension, some of these additions appear to be editorial in function, seeking to modify teachings in the light of a preferred doctrinal stance. In other words, someone read it and that doesn't sound right. That's not what Buddha would have said. And then they took out their, whatever they scratched with, and those days they used to scratch on too palm leaf and the birch bar. So so there are serious historiographical issues here. The Pali Canon is is the oldest in the Theravada side of Buddhism, and yet that's only one of many different versions. And even the Pali Canon appears to have been messed with. There's interpolations, maybe extrapolations. There are different levels and everything. And that's what we have to go on. So I mention these things not to... I don't want to make everybody completely cynical, like we know nothing about Buddha but rather that we sort of have to a little grain of salt with this. We take a little grain of salt and realize that we don't have just hard, scientific history. We have a tradition coming down, and we certainly know that this is what the tradition says. We know this is what the tradition says, but what actually happened is, um, at least by academic means, if someone's a faithful Buddhist and feels they've had experiences that confirm that this is what really happened, then... That's a religious claim which we can't talk about academically, but in terms of academic means, it's uh, it's not all clear. Any questions on that so far? This yes. You said that um, there haven't been any political comparisons of Chinese texts and Sanskrit. Right. Little there pieces, are, in the there sense are, that. Like Chinese scholars. Very good. Yeah, excellent question. There, uh, yeah, in fact, there have been like little bits and pieces, like a Chinese scholar, let's say, will take one thing and translate it and compare it. So there are some bits and pieces, but nothing like a comprehensive study. So it's just just trying to do it now. I think in Berkeley there's a. I used to go to Berkeley as a kid. So at Berkeley now they have a, um, a project to try to do this. So maybe you know there is help on the way. An yes. You mentioned earlier that, that lot of chronology was has been discredited. Lotto chronology doesn't mean saying this is older than that. But, but you mentioned that the the they can yeah. they, they According to the languages, they decided that this was much earlier than the No, glottochronology chronology means to know exactly the rate of language change. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at Chaucer and Shakespeare and, let's say, an Apple computer manual and see that these are different levels of English. But what you can't do if you don't know the history, like we happen to know basically when Shakespeare lived, we know when Chaucer lived, but if we knew nothing about the history, you couldn't look at those languages and say exactly how much time elapsed between, say, Chaucer and Shakespeare. You wouldn't know it. that's what it means, like, saying it was exactly this many years that you can't do it. Yes? It's interesting that um, Buddhism, like, after some time, didn't survive in India, but then it went to China and all those, like, um, and Japan. I wonder why, like, it succeeded there. Like, was there a religion there that, you know, didn't work out, or why they took liking to Buddhism? That's a very good question. And uh, forgive me, but I, I fr- uh, Friday we'll talk more about that. But please, okay. you know, I'll try remember to bring it up. That, that's a very good question. What happened in India, what happened in other places. Basically, when Buddhism, just very short, so I don't want to completely ignore your question. When Buddhism came over and went East, it came in this super impressive cultural package because Buddhism didn't go east until after the Mahayana hullabaloo, you know, this big explosion. And you'll see, I mean, the Mahayana thing was this incredible historical development. And so, I'm not saying they were right, but it was very impressive. And with the Mahayana development, which we talk about Friday, <laughs> we talk about everything Friday. Um, <laughs> That's when Buddhism also started to sort of this rapprochement, started to come back toward Hinduism because as it grew it kind of took all kinds of things from Hinduism. It became much more like Hinduism. So by the time it went far, far east it had this super impressive culture all around it in terms of literary culture, philosophy, monastic practice. It, it was a real juggernaut. And and it didn't just totally it didn't just immediately bowl over the Chinese because there were certain problems like Confucianism stressed the importance of the family and the Buddhists were saying hey everybody leave your family and become a monk so the Chinese didn't love that idea of leaving your family so there were some problems but but it, it was very impressive culturally and it it, it it had tremendous impact and eventually became a central religious orientation in the Far East. One can speculate the reason for the lack of success of Jainism and Buddhism in India? Because ontologically, Buddhism doesn't really explain the existential, you know, truth about the self. It, it really leaves the question... It's funny you should say that, because we're just about to talk about that now. Okay. So, we're, so we're going to talk about that, okay? Um, so anyway, I've enough, I think, the... Uh, the historiography I don't want to be cruel no. just, just very briefly things you, I'm sure you've read that um, images of Buddha, those famous Buddhist statues some of which the Taliban blew up that was their contribution to world culture but these, these, these very famous these very famous Buddhist statues these what's yeah, that? that was the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah these very big famous buddhist statues and now I mean it's very famous. everyone has seen these buddhist statues, and some people have them on their desk. little you know, I mean it's very it's a very famous thing these depictions of Buddhists. that didn't start until the 2nd century AD or BC but BC and then uh, so Buddha, more and more, starts to become a figure of devotion. At first, he's like the great teacher. He has these simple four noble truths, which you know. You know, you're suffering. You're suffering because you're selfish. Stop being selfish, and you'll be happy. You want to stop being selfish? Live right. I mean, that's basically it. Which is a great message, you know? You're suffering. It's because you're selfish. Stop being selfish, and you'll be happy. Here's how to stop being selfish. Those are the four noble truths. And so... He was a simple, austere teacher. He was obviously a powerful figure. He was a great organizer. He inspired a lot of people. And, uh, but Buddha grew. He more and more started to become a figure of devotion because the Buddhists are in India where everyone is worshipping something. I mean, even today in India, you can see that there, there, there's a lot of worship going on. And so Buddha gradually becomes an object of worship. They start making deities of the Buddha, these little figures of Buddha. And that starts happening. Uh... Anyway, regarding Buddhist doctrine, yes? I have a question about this guy. Because, mm-hmm. um, for some reason I think of a Buddha, he's a little fat man laughing. Um, I he probably wasn't fat, because, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was starved himself. Yeah. Like, well, why is there this confusion and this, like, the idea of what Buddha was? Like, well, Buddha's belly for luck. Like, I get that image Yeah, but I guess for the Buddha. same reason that you can see certain religious literature that's sometimes brought to your door by sincere people, in which you find this, you know, sort of buff Scandinavian Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> So people do tend to make themselves comfortable with their religions, and and, uh, and because for centuries and centuries there were no paintings or sculptures of, of the Buddha, and so when they finally came, it was like anyone's guess what he really looked like. And also, Buddha himself encouraged people to be sort of free thinking, so people kind of Buddhism was a very expansive. It wasn't. It wasn't so fanatical. It wasn't so dogmatic in the beginning. there's another important point about Buddha. and I want to get to, Doctor, that that he emphasized. Practical techniques. You're suffering. You need to stop suffering. So if you think about it, to train your mind to live properly, to clear your consciousness, not to be selfish. This is all about psychology. It's kind of like a self-help program. Here's how you could have a good life and be happy. And there's a lot of evidence that the Buddha really taught this as a practical program. People weren't fighting and wrestling in the mud over doctrine. It, it, it wasn't like that. It was really about how you can have a good life and be happy and stop being selfish. And so, uh, in that regard, socially, uh, again, we talked about this last time. Buddha appears at a time when, again, he's over in East India. There's not, it's not the center of brahminical influence. There's this very rigid, hardened caste, hierarchical caste. Uh, there's not much, or like zero upward mobility spiritually, and uh, it's very ritualistic. And Buddha was was extremely revolutionary. He just says, forget all this stuff. You know, forget the rituals. Forget the Vedas. Forget the Brahmins. Forget the caste. Just forget it. Let's just, like, start over and reinvent the good life. And let's just, it's almost like Descartes sitting down and, what's the one undeniable thing which, which I know I know, and that is that I exist. So Buddha says, the one thing you can't deny is that life you're suffering. And of course, now the people say, well, he meant life is not satisfying because it's temporary. No matter what you do, you're always in anxiety. So if you read the earlier literature, uh, people didn't talk about it that much. Just this powerful realization, hey, you know, this world is overrated, everybody. And despite all of our pretensions and all of our hopes, we're really not perfectly happy. We're actually kind of in an anxiety a lot of the time. And we always, it's, it's like the examples given of, of the mule where they, 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 they put a carrot, hang a carrot in front of a mule and he walks all day with a heavy load trying to get the carrot. You can never quite do the math. that I'm not getting closer to the carrot. So in the same way, you could say life is sort of always striving for something. and you get it, you strive for something else. And the Buddhas made these exhaustive, leave out nothing, Analyses of why life is miserable and suffering, (laughs) but in any case, uh, so Buddha's yes. I heard that the God Buddha image came out of of China because they associated prosperity with a girth. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In India, also to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope by now they, sure, they get to speed on health issues, but. So, anyway, uh, so early Buddhism, and you will see next, well, Friday, you'll see, you'll see everything Friday. <laughs> including the future of the U.S. economy. So, the idea is that <laughs> they were really focused more on techniques. And so the first debates in the Buddhist world were not on doctrine. The first debates were not about doctrine, not about, you know, what is God, what is not God, what is soul, what is not soul like how to run a monastery, how do you practice, how do you practically get into this higher state of consciousness. So that was the Buddha's life, he, he had a tremendous social impact. I think, um, I, I mean I have to say not being a Buddhist myself, that it had an extremely healthy effect in various ways on India. Because, as I said before, India was sort of the unresponsive monopoly, like, you know, let me talk to your boss. No, you can't talk to the boss. I want better service. Sorry, if you don't like it. If you don't like it go to hell literally. because that's, that's the option. So you have this unresponsive monopoly, and suddenly you have this tremendous challenge that wakes up India. I, mean, I think it's really fair to say that Jainism also, because Jainism is like very small now numerically, there's only like a couple million in India which is very tiny for countries of over a billion people. But up until, uh, oh, you could say 800 years ago, or even perhaps more recently, Jainism was really in the running. They were really neck and neck with Buddhism. Jainism and Buddhism were really both up there. They both had a lot of influence. And, and so these new things that came on, that rejected the Vedas, rejected the Brahmins, they really woke everybody up. This was a total wake-up call for the Vedic Hindu side. And they responded. I mean, if you look at uh, the effect of the Protestant Reformation on the Catholic Church, in a the sense, they had to reinvent themselves. You know, the Jesuits suddenly came into being, and they just, they just really had to redo a lot of things and become competitive. And, and so, I mean, it's, you know, it's the American way. Competition produces lower prices and better service. <laughs> and in a sense, this is what happened. And I was just thinking about this the other day, that um, there was something that must have been incredibly liberating for people in India back then, when suddenly it's on merit. Like if you are spiritually inclined, if you feel a calling, because there was no such thing back then as a calling, like what's your last name? You know, where were you born? Sorry, wrong birth. We talk nowadays about a calling, a spiritual calling. If you felt yourself called, if you felt yourself inspired, inspired, you could become a Buddhist monk. You could become a Buddhist teacher. didn't matter where you were born. Suddenly, all those people out there that had the ability, the desire; they had a chance to do something. So it must have been incredibly liberating. It's almost like the collapse of the old Soviet regime. I mean, where suddenly, you know, it's like well, maybe we won't talk about modern Russia. But it is a fact that um, it was the change of the Buddhists. There was something incredibly liberating about it. Now, another thing I want to talk about is if you study the sociology of revolutions in terms of. If you study the sociology of revolutionary communities, and then once the revolution's over, you become settled. One thing you can observe over and over and over again, us it's the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Buddhist Revolution, other religious reformations, is that when people are in this revolutionary spirit, people suddenly are free. They don't worry so much. They don't, as I say, sweat the eschatology. You know, eschatology, which... uh, I have a dictionary definition, did I print it? Oh my god. You. Anyway, it means, eschatos in Greek means like the last thing. What happens when you die? What's the fate of your soul? Where do you go? You know, it's, it's, it's like what happens at the end? What's going to happen to me after I practice this? So in this, like if you look at solidarity in Poland, it it's before your time, but when the Soviet Union began to unravel. And they had this big solidarity movement in Poland, led by Lech Wałęsa. He was this sort of dock worker, great revolutionary leader, stirred up the Russians, the the, the Polish people, and they started this non-cooperation with the Soviet Union. It really was a major blow against the Soviet Union. And so naturally, after they became free, uh, they elected Lech Wałęsa as president of Poland. He was a terrible president. Great revolutionary, terrible president. So, in the early days of Buddhism, in the early days of Buddhism, there was this tremendous freedom. It was was like this great freedom movement to get past the caste system. And you don't have to follow the Brahmins, and you can actually, Buddha even encourages followers to think for themselves. You may have your own ideas on these things. And so, therefore, but one of the results of this is, I believe, is to quote our book on uh, Buddhism, not the philosophy of the Buddhism, what becomes of a Buddha, like the highest level, or an Arhat, which all the literal translations of books were actually not literal. Uh, it's funny, because these books, all the time they say, this literally means so-and-so, but it, it doesn't. So, the Sanskrit root, uh, Arh means to be worthy, like Arhati. It's a verb. It's a very common verb. To be qualified for something, to be worthy of something. So, arhat literally means like the worthy one. Qualified, worthy person. So, uh, what becomes of a Buddha or an arhat at death? I mean, if you're giving your life to Buddhism, like, okay, I'm giving up the whole Vedic thing, the caste system. I'm going over the wall. I'm becoming a Buddhist. I'm free. And I'm going to dedicate my life to this. So, what happens to you at the time of death? Like, what's the grand prize? Well... What becomes of a Buddha or a Narhata death? It is in connection with final nirvana that problems of understanding arise. This is from our book. When the flame of craving is extinguished... By the way, vana in Sanskrit... Uh, the Sanskrit word vana means like a current or a flow. It can be like, you know, it can be water, flame, anything. And near... Plan ahead, right? Near means without. In Sanskrit, so Nirvana means vana-less, No novana, and uh, vana means the currents. So, you stop this current of samsara and karma. So when the flame goes out, this flame of craving, this burning material desire, rebirth ceases, and an enlightened person is not reborn. So, what happened to him? Well, the other shoe is not going to drop. What has happened to him? There is no clear answer to this question in the early sources. There is no clear answer to this question in the early sources. The Buddha discouraged speculation about the nature of Nirvana and emphasized instead the need to strive for its attainment. Those who asked about Nirvana he compared to a man. And I, I want to a little time. I, yes. Um, Can I just finish this one, and then but we'll get back for you. your money back. He compared to a man wounded by a poisoned arrow, who rather than pulling the arrow out, persists in asking for irrelevant information about who fired the arrow, what's the guy's name, and clan, how far are we standing? Very interesting. Now, far be it from me to criticize the Buddha. However, if someone shot me with a poisoned arrow, I think, yeah, first I'm going to take the arrow out, but that wouldn't take that long. And once the arrow's out, I think I really want to know who shot me. Because they may have another poison arrow shoot with me. So, I don't think it is trivial or unnecessary or a distraction or silly or irrelevant to want to know who shot me and why I got shot. So, discouraging speculation like, never mind how you, this gets back to what you said, this issue of like, how did we come to this world at all? Why am I here at all? Why was I born? And how did this world get here at all? And why am I suffering? And why did I get shot by a poison arrow? To say that it's a waste of time to think about these things, uh, I don't think so. I think it's actually quite useful information. There's no cosmology in either one of them. Well, the Buddhists did develop a huge cosmology. But, uh, yes? Yes. Um, I think that maybe he did it that way because when you think about Christianity and you think about how they teach nowadays, they teach you things because they're like, oh, you'll go to heaven. Right. So like, the reason why people do all this stuff is because they want to go to heaven. Whereas if you don't know what's going to happen after that, you're just thinking about, okay, I'm doing this because of now, because I want to reach Nirvana, not because I want to go someplace better when I die. True. I mean, I mean, there is something to be said to that. I think there is this element in Buddhism where just be good for goodness sake. Mahayana will talk about that, about even foregoing heaven, because they do come up with a heaven, by the way, a very competitive heaven. But they they do think, like, that's the whole spirit of Mahayana. You become a, a bodhisattva because you say, forget heaven, I want to help people. However, uh, I would say that because of this revolutionary fervor, it's hard to exaggerate how revolutionary, how amazing this was back in ancient India, that suddenly you're free. You're free from the caste system. That there's upward mobility. You, you're as good as as your own talent. I mean, you can go as high as you can based on your own ability. This must have been incredibly liberating. And, and also, I would say that as far as the Four Noble Truths, it's something we can actually experience. I mean, I think any one of us can experience it in those lucid moments we have, however frequent. But when, when we're kind of not selfish, we're feeling really just generous toward the world, and you can, I can be in a room with people and I'm not trying to show off to them, I'm just trying to do the right thing, I'm being kind, you're actually really happier And those times when we're really trying to show off and trying to grasp something and trying to exploit someone else sexually or financially or whatever, that that's not real happiness. That's not the deepest, most satisfying state of consciousness. So because it's something I think any normal person can experience, and a Buddha says, well, imagine a superversion of that. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I'm liberated down here, socially, vocationally, I'm liberated. I'm starting to make progress psychologically. I'm starting to have a better life. And it's going to lead to a superversion of all this. So people decide to run with that. And then what we see, what happens down the road, when the revolutionary fervor wears off, you see this in the American Revolution, you know, once the revolution's over, everyone goes back to the you know the, the real thing, which is making a lot of money. And America starts to expand and grab land and everything else. So so once this revolution wears off and Buddhism, especially when Buddhism gets this patronage from the Mauryans, from Ashok and everything, then they do become concerned about, well, where am I going and, and, and what does it all mean? And this does become an issue. And they're not content not to speculate. In fact, Buddhism becomes one of the most prolific sources of uh, spiritual literature in the world. They write thousands and thousands of books and debate these things. And that's what we're going to talk about together with every other imaginable topic on Friday. So any other questions on these points? I mean, we didn't cover everything, but uh, as far as uh, Buddhist philosophy, nirvana, anatta, he taught there's no self. But what does that mean? There, I mean, I want to talk about that today, but just to give you a preview, of coming in, here's a trailer for Friday. Um, there is the second sermon. Buddha gave his first, the, the four great events in Buddha's life for Buddha's work, his birth, of course, and then uh, his enlightenment, his first sermon, and then his death. So his first sermon, of course, was in the Deer Park in Bernard's. I didn't go over all the biographical details, I assume you read it. You know, the four signs where scholars think it's not what he first saw, the first time in his life, a sick person, an old person, a dead person. And what people, scholars tend to think is that you can go through your whole life and, and really be in denial about your own mortality. That is possible. To really be like 20 years old you never saw a sick person or an old person, that's a bit of a stretch, even in a palace life. But but people do go through life thinking that, well, I'll just, you know, psychologically as if I would never die. We know if you had to get the answer right on a test, you'd say I'm mortal. But psychologically we tend to live as if, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing this. So in that sense, the Buddha, but his sermon, first sermon, the Deer Park. his second sermon is actually called the Sermon on the Non-Existence of the Soul. The Sermon on the Non-Existence of the Soul, Anatta but when you look at everything Buddha taught and what was taught after, you begin to realize, I was talking to Jason about this, that uh, it's not really denying there's a soul. It's not really saying there's no soul. It's really saying something else. And uh, sort of an unusual way of saying it, but saying something else. So we'll talk about that later. Any questions? Before you all Please. Uh, okay, thank you all very much. See you on Friday.